This is a podcast from the Business Times. I'm Clarissa Montero and this is Lens on Singapore. The Singapore story is well known from a natural deep water port and part of Malaysia to a successful island republic in less than 60 years. But Singapore is at an inflection point politically and economically. To talk about issues of regional security, counter-terrorism, and how these could impact on Singapore's continued stability and prosperity, I'm joined in the studio by Kay Shanmugam, Minister for Home Affairs and Minister for Law. Minister, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Clarissa. Now let's get right into it and look at Singapore's economic success. Do you think that as a country, we have started to take our success for granted? Maybe we're getting a bit complacent because really, what is the basis of our success? And, you know, what are we going to do to drive future success? That's a very incisive question. (laughs) I don't know that uh, I would say we have started to take uh, our success for granted. I think a lot of people are aware that the success is built on very narrow foundations What I would say is perhaps we are not as paranoid as we ought to be. The leadership has to be paranoid. The people also have to be paranoid. And, uh, you know, I deal with the younger generation. I deal with uh, others. They are on the leading edge, cutting edge of competition, both within Singapore and outside. And they're very hardworking. And they're very intense and focused. So I wouldn't say they are complacent. But they may not be aware of some of the things that policymakers like me are aware of, the regional situation, the issues relating to terrorism, some aspects of the economic competition, and that makes us paranoid. You can't blame them. They're not aware of all the facts. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't say they are complacent. And if you look at uh, what I alluded to in terms of paranoia, my concerns are these. If you look at Singapore, 720 square kilometers. You can drive from Jurong to Changi in what, under an hour. And from Woodlands to Robinson Road, also under an hour on the expressways. That's our country. Countries make money one of three ways. I'm just putting it very broadly. You dig something from the ground and you sell oil, minerals, and so on. We can't do that. You grow something on the ground and you sell, we can't do that. The third is you provide services, legal, accounting, medical, other kinds of services, financial, and you make money. Mm. Now, that's how we are making our living. But we are providing these services to countries in the region and internationally. But if you look at it, Indonesia, Malaysia, other countries, Thailand, and so on, they really want to be doing these services themselves. Mm. They would ask themselves, and they ask themselves, why can't they export their own goods? Why can't they do their own legal and accounting services? Why can't they do their own, uh, provide adequate medical facilities for their own people? And if we can do it, they all can do it, right? And that's a natural aspiration and you must respect it. So then the question is, what's our future? That's right. Bearing in mind, it's not just the region, but uh, you have hundreds of millions of Chinese and Indians coming on stream in their countries. And what is it that we do in Singapore that they cannot do faster, cheaper, and as well, if not better. And what's our value proposition? Say accounting services, bookkeeping services, writing accounts. Why is it not possible today to have the accounts written up overseas, whether in the Philippines or somewhere else, 
and have them sent by email and have a small team in Singapore double check it rather than having a large team of professionals actually doing a lot of the work. Mm. So many of these services can be broken up into pieces and some of the pieces can be done overseas and some pieces can be done in Singapore. And this and this is without speaking about artificial intelligence. That's right. So we face uh, very significant issues from a purely economic perspective uh, without talking about the security issues and that adds a further dimension. It's interesting what you just said because it leads very nicely into my next question which was about Singaporeans and the service sector. A lot of Singaporeans now work in the service sector, banking, retail, tourism, and there is some concern that they're going to start to face stiff competition regionally for those jobs, particularly, as you said, you don't have to be here. You can work anywhere. Why not Indonesia? Why not the Philippines? So is that a worry that we have to address and how do we? I think this is, again, a very serious <laughs> uh, near existential question. Let's take uh, financial services. I think it employs about 200,000 professionals, sure. people, and it's about 14% of our GDP. If you take uh, tourism-related, including aviation, aviation and tourism, I think it might employ about 150,000 people, 10 11% of our GDP. So we are talking about big numbers. You yes. take shipping, very substantial number of people employed, also a significant part of the GDP. And then you ask yourself, which of these can be done overseas. Or as I said earlier, sliced up and parts done overseas. So far, because of our very strong regulatory legal framework, plus a business-friendly approach, plus ease of doing business and lack of corruption and high education, and the fact that our people are not just highly educated, but highly motivated and work very hard, and with a government that thinks 20 years, 30 years, 40 years and puts in place uh, both the legal and uh, regulatory framework, but also uh, is pro-business. Mm. Pro-business because we are pro-people, because businesses employ people. Investments then create more jobs. And investors know that you don't have uh, U-turns that affect them badly. Investors know that this is not an irrational government that suddenly changes its rules and they'll find that they are in trouble. So you have uh, a lot of people employed in the service sector. The service sector can be spliced and some parts can be taken away. Uh, more than some parts can be taken away and done by others. And investors find that when they come here, uh, they can find good people in Singapore. They can employ, they can invest, their money is safe, they are safe. So the, all the factors come together mm. to make us an attractive place. And there aren't many places around which uh, offer the same. But bear in mind, there are many places which are far less expensive. Land is cheaper and uh, the wages are much lower. For example, to employ a software engineer in Singapore is multiple times what it costs to employ a software engineer in Jakarta or Vietnam. There are places, you don't need the entire country to be like Singapore, but if there are urban centers that uh, have something like Singapore, it's possible for work to move, and we need to be aware of that. Competition, I, I would put it two ways. It's external competition, others getting their act together, or others just taking parts which can be done remotely away from us, which still means a loss for us. 
And second part is internal competition because if an investor comes and he says, I want to invest $5 billion, mm-hmm. but I need 3,000 engineers and I need um, you know 2,000 of these uh, skilled personnel. We don't have 3,000 engineers and we don't have 2,000. We have maybe you know 200 skilled people yeah. and maybe you know 500 or 600 engineers possibly. And just to give you some numbers, if you look at it, uh, China produces about 5 million STEM graduates a year. India produces 2.5 million STEM graduates a year. Indonesia produces 200,000 STEM graduates a year. But that's the scale we can't How manage. many do we produce? Yeah. But yeah. we want the investment. You're going to need those STEM graduates. But you want to make sure that your own people are employed. Mm. And then they come in and uh, supplement rather than supplant. And you can understand the anxiety of someone in Singapore, Singaporean, say in his 40s, he's in a good job. If he feels that his job is going to go, he's not going to be happy. And so the challenge is to make sure that we remain attractive for investment, that we remain attractive for investors because they can get the talent in Singapore and they can supplement that talent from overseas, but without that taking away Singaporean jobs. Right. It's a... It's a difficult balance mm. and inevitably there will be cases where uh, mid-level employees um, in companies, you know, for one reason or another, favor foreign um, workers or Singaporean workers right. at that kind of level. And Singapore is a small place and, you know, people's unhappiness is easily transmitted to each other. Yes. And there would be a general sense of nervousness, all entirely understandable. And which is why, you know, we have moved to try and target sectors, industries, individual companies even, and their hiring practices to the extent that we can. The government has signaled that as a country, we need to have a serious conversation on how to sustain population growth whether through raising the total fertility rate or TFR or immigration. But Singaporeans in turn have strongly voiced that we are uncomfortable with the arrival of foreign talent in what feels like unacceptably large numbers. Uncomfortable with the many newly minted citizens, here is a divide between policy and public opinion. So let's have that conversation. There is a fear we'll lose our jobs to foreign talent. We're concerned about the competition our children face for places in good schools. Help us understand why we need the foreign talent, the new citizens. I think the concerns are entirely understandable. We have to have a very serious conversation in Singapore on these issues. Mm. And I will break the issues up into this. First, the data. You know, our TFR today is very low. It's about 1.2. And we are not unique in that. You look across East Asia, you look at the West. It's actually global. It's all low. In fact, ours is slightly better than many of the other East Asian uh, places. Uh, You look at South Korea, you look at Japan, you look at Hong Kong, you look at even China. Of course, China had a one-child policy. You look at the West. Other than the very Catholic countries, Mm, mm. if you look at Germany and so on, the TFR is very low. And if you look at our aging profile, in the year 2000, 23 years ago, we had like eight and a half working persons for every one person who was a senior. By uh, 2030, you will only have 
2.1, basically two working adults mm. for every one mm. person who is senior. So just imagine the impact on our next generation, the taxes they will have to pay to support the elderly because healthcare costs are going to shoot up. In fact, in 2007, we spent 6.7% of our GDP on healthcare, $2.2 billion. By 2023, this year, we are spending about $17 billion. That's uh, 16% of our GDP. A very substantial amount. And it's only going to increase. You've seen PM's National Day Rally Mm -hmm. speech. It's going to increase. Now, where is this money going to come from? As it is today, we are, every year, if you look at our budget, we are spending more than the income we are getting from taxes and other collections. The main reason why our budget is not in a deficit is because one-fifth of the income is actually from our reserves. The money that we get, 50% of the income every year, we take it for current budget. And that helps keep our taxes low and fund all these policies. It's like a family living on uh, money that is in the bank Mm. for 20% of its budget. Money, not the capital, but the interest. And uh, that plus the fact that there is intense regional competition and that jobs can go away from Singapore because jobs now can be, many other jobs can be done outside of Singapore and they can be done from the virtual space. It Mm. can be, there's competition from AI. So we've got to have a conversation about all of this and what investors need if they are to come to Singapore. And how do we make sure that we can give investors what they need, make Singapore an investor-friendly place, at the same time, protect Singapore jobs. Now, we've got to protect Singapore jobs, not by saying, don't worry, regardless of how you perform, you will have your job. Because I think Singaporeans are reasonable people. That's not what they're asking. What they are saying is, when we are performing properly, Mm -hmm. we don't want our jobs taken away because some foreigner is favored over us, not because he's better, but because he's a foreigner. And that's entirely understandable. And so our rules have to come round to making sure that that's sort of, it's not unfair towards Singaporeans, while giving enough flexibility to the investors to bring in talent, while Singaporeans have their jobs. And if you look at our unemployment rate, it's very low. And I think most people understand that where they are directly affected, of course, there'll be unhappiness. And we'll have to try and see that if they have been unfairly treated, we need to try and deal with that. We have to have serious conversations surrounding our aging population, Mm. our TFR, which is low, if it continues to be low. And uh, when your population is aging and there are less working people, there is a certain loss of vibrancy in the economy too. And how do you continue remaining attractive towards investors and how do you fund your increasing expenses so these are serious questions and uh, today we are okay Mm -hmm. but in 10 years 20 years how do you square these different uh, trade-offs these are serious questions help me understand as a Singaporean I'm looking at it I understand the policy and what you just said but if we have more immigrants wouldn't that also mean that we need more infrastructure and more medical care for them? And that would raise the cost even more? By the way, I'm not arguing for more immigrants. My earlier point is that, look, we have some serious issues mm. in Singapore. 
the first of which is the aging population yes and the resultant impact on the economy and the resultant impact on costs and including healthcare costs and the need for more doctors more nurses and spending far more right and how we're going to find the money and also how are we going to continue to remain attractive to investors both local and international to create businesses in singapore employ singaporeans mm. when um, they find that it's an aging population and there are less and less people they can find of course our people will remain active for longer right. if they remain healthier and that means that you get more working years and people will want to work anyway if they are healthy keeps their mind active but nevertheless if there aren't enough young people coming in stream into the workforce that does impact on you so those are i said serious conversations we need to have yes uh, over the spanning over the next 10 15 20 years now um immigration is i'm not suggesting immigration is the only solution it cannot be the only solution it cannot even be a partial solution you need some immigration i think most singaporeans will agree you need some immigration as long as it helps us and it helps supplement our existing uh, workforce if you look at today's uh, singaporean uh, residency profile 3.2 million citizens about 560,000 permanent residents so that makes it like 3.75 3.76 million or residents who are either citizens or prs the rest is what i would call floating population right people on work permits your construction workers workers cleaners and fnb workers and so on a large number doing jobs that uh, singaporeans don't really uh, want to do and then there are those on eps doing jobs that singaporeans would like to do and that's where as i said earlier you got to make sure that those who come in don't supplant singaporeans they supplement the singaporean right. workforce and that way we can have a win-win situation and you have to have a balance between the number of people who become citizens and we are carefully and tightly controlled on that and the number of people who can come here to work on short term passes and then leave after a period of time they contribute to the singapore economy they contribute to taxes it's beneficial for them too for the years that they work here and then you know they leave so that deals with your point about uh, you know wouldn't they age and how many you can take in within singapore of course must be something that our infrastructure and our land size can bear and our small size means that uh, we have more trade offs mm. and our infrastructure has to be worked in such a way that we can manage whatever population that we think uh, can be maintained in singapore and uh, you need to be careful about uh, how many citizens you have and how many permanent residents you have floating population working population i think people understand they are here for anything between 2 to 8 years 10 years then uh, they go back to their home country that's their wish i think that can be managed say look at hong kong and new york they're vibrant cities because of that floating foreign talent yes and but hong kong and new york also have the same issues that we have which is that the local population wants to know that they will not be uh, thrown out of jobs sure. you got to make sure that when immigration comes in it's actually not a pro immigration policy per se or it's uh, the policy is that it benefits singaporeans yes. it must benefit singaporeans it must make sure that singaporeans get good jobs and their jobs are safe and that these help singaporeans 
Now, I'm not saying it always works that way. In a complex economy like Singapore's, you will have situations where individual companies behave badly, individual mid-level managers behave badly. But question is, overall, are we quite tight? Mm. And do we try and deal with situations which go wrong? And the proof is in the eating of the pudding. Singapore, 3.2 million citizens, 560,000 permanent residents, and a floating population. I think all in we are looking at five and a half million people. What's the size of our economy? It's $380 billion, maybe a bit more, US dollars. That's bigger than the Malaysian economy. Right. Singapore is uh, 720 square kilometers. Malaysia is 330,000 square kilometers. Malaysia has every resource you can think of. Yes. Palm oil, oil, rubber, and things are dug from the ground and things are grown on the ground. And it has a 30 million population. What sane reason is there for Singapore dollar to be worth three times the Malaysian ringgit and for the Singapore economy to be bigger than the Malaysian economy? It's because the policies have been sensible. Singaporeans have benefited. By and large, most Singaporeans are employed. Unemployment is a very uh, small number. And overall, the economy has been well managed because Singaporeans are well educated, they are productive, they are hardworking, and they are willing to learn new skills. That's how we have managed. Doesn't mean there are no problems. And uh, if you look at the horizon, the problems look even more severe. But uh, so far, they've been managed. Still to come, rising religiosity in the region is not just a concern for our government here in Singapore. Governments in the region too have noted a rising trend towards greater religious exclusivism and sympathy towards more extreme ideology. Why? And what does that mean for us? That's ahead. And now, this episode of Lens on Singapore continues. I'm Clarissa Montero in conversation with Kay Shanmugam, Minister for Home Affairs and Minister for Law. Let's talk about religiosity. The COVID years seem to have contributed to an environment for religious exclusivism to thrive. Was it that people were distanced from daily face-to-face interaction with their colleagues, from their friends and family? Did this contribute to rising sympathies for more extreme ideology? Or were those sympathies simmering below the surface the whole time? I wouldn't ascribe it just to COVID. Mm. I think uh, the main reason is that Today, the online sphere, mm. you can tune in to whatever appeals to you and uh, you get a series of micro-communities which are based on interests or race or religion forming. Over the years, the events in the Middle East, the wars, the Palestinian situation, the rise of ISIS, Al-Qaeda, all of this has contributed uh, to a wave of extremist uh, propaganda and you also have a wave of extremist right-wing propaganda based on killing Muslims and uh, attacking others. For example, it was a right-wing extremist who went into the mosque in New Zealand and killed a large number of Muslims. So you have uh, extremism on all sides increasing. You see, there are always some people in society, some of whom are mentally not so well, some of whom are 
can be disposed towards extremism and violence but in the past it wasn't so easy to radicalize them and motivate them today with online you watch a video that extols violence towards people that you are encouraged to hate and some people find that uh, motivating mm. and you have that across different religious groups and some quite often encouraged by politicians as well or political groups uh, for their own ends and you get this across the world in many countries right. and this region has not been spared because it's a large muslim population there are small minorities within them who have uh, found the extremist uh, videos and propaganda and preaching attractive mm. and then you go slightly beyond this region you have non muslim populations which have found other kinds of extremist preaching christian or buddhist even for the field even hindu segments sure. in different societies which have become extremist and they are prepared to go and do something violent in pursuit of that so just how serious of a threat to our future economic success is this rising support for extreme ideology i would say very serious because what is our success built on as i emphasized earlier 720 square mm-hmm. kilometers we are seen as an oasis of stability peace clear regulations uh, rational government hard working people so it threatens our stability it threatens the idea that you can be an oasis of peace if around you there are serious uh, incidents in stability it's not the situation yet but uh, it is a serious risk because you have had incidents you have rising religiosity in the region surveys in one of our neighboring countries shows that 20% of the people believe in a either an islamic caliphate or that suicide bombing is a acceptable form of jihad now no 20% are not going to go and do something but if a very small percentage of that 20% decide to do something that's still a large number so you can have threats counter threats but all in if incidents rise and i also see increasingly in the region religion and race being used as props for politics that mm, mm. you know i am so and so vote for me based on my race or i am so and so vote for me based on my religion yeah. as parties compete on religious lines each one has got to prove that they are more religious than the other person and i'm not talking about any particular religion here because you look around the region you see different religions sure so when you appeal to religious identities racial identities as many political parties are doing it's going to polarize societies and when you get polarization you are going to get violent incidents that kind of approach in countries in a, say southeast asia inevitably will affect how singapore is perceived quite apart from the kinetic effects and i'm not even referring to the kinetic effects mm-hmm. by kinetic effects what i mean is people from outside singapore wanting to come into singapore and attack because singapore is seen as a high profile price target as isd has put out in its uh, review yes we remain a very highly priced target and an attack in singapore will get international headlines sure. so leaving that aside that itself can affect confidence you know if it becomes frequent but beyond that the fact that the region if it goes this way it's not certain it'll go this way but if it goes this way and it's a risk because i see the politics going that way then it is got serious implications for us 
is this going to be a growing fear for us? It is a fear for me. It is a fear for policymakers. And uh, how it goes, I think, depends on how politics in Southeast Asia goes. This makes my last question even more important personally to me. I became a journalist because I believe that what I do, what my colleagues here at the Business Times do, is a public good. So I feel I have to ask amid the growing diversity of views, the demand to be heard, how do you see the media reflecting all this while yet playing a role in keeping Singapore and Singaporeans together? The media's role is to inform, educate uh, rationally, reasonably. And uh, it's important for Singapore that we have uh, national newspapers which uh, focus on national issues and allow people to conversation on various issues. It's not the only conversation they have. They will have many different conversations on different platforms. But the national media can focus on some of the major issues. The whole idea is to get them thinking on the different issues. For example, our aging issues. Mm. For example, the issues we face from the rising religiosity in the region. For example, the competition that we face from AI and uh, the the fact that others can do the jobs that we do in Singapore. All of these are issues on which we need conversations and the media has a very important role. Its, uh, its role is to bring these issues out, have Singaporeans thinking about them, have Singaporeans debating them and uh, providing a forum where people then can come to some kind of viewpoints, hopefully coil us around some central ideas and coil us because it's important for us that the people, are at least a majority, agree on what are the steps forward. You know, each of us will have our individual perspectives and individual interests, but on some issues, whether we can get a, a broader consensus. And I think media's role is in part, it's not the only medium, but it's a part in trying to forge that consensus by getting conversations and debates and discussions going. Conversations like we're ha having today. Yeah, conversations like we're having today. We can't tell what the solutions are going to be always. You know, mm -hmm. It's government's duty to go and think of solutions, but it cannot be just the government. People have to understand that there are issues, there are problems, and then start thinking about the solutions. And then government can come up with solutions which can then be mediated upon, discussed, and decided upon. So it's partnership. Partnership. and uh, But somebody has got to take the lead and say, this is the way to go. And you get it wrong, then, you know, the answer comes at the elections. Singapore's first Prime Minister, Mr Lee Kuan Yew, is noted for telling the first executive chairman of the Straits Times Press that the Straits Times was a bowl of China, further remarking to him that if he broke it, it could be pieced back together, but that it would never be the same advising him to try not to destroy it. I get the sense as a Singaporean that these words could very easily now apply to our country. This has been Lens on Singapore. Our guest for this podcast, Keishan Rugam, Minister for Home Affairs and Minister for Law. For The Business Times, I'm Clarissa Montero. This is a podcast by The Business Times. Find more BT podcasts at businesstimes.com.sg slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.